and welcome to your daily game face. I'm Dr. Kim Lannon, and and how are you this morning, Lou? I'm okay. Good, and and it's a beautiful sort of day here. Wow, what's going on? Well, it's beautiful out. Why sort of? Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, because it's not like um, it's freezing, not eighty, but it's not as nice as it was yesterday. Yeah, true. So it's an in between kind of day, but it's still beautiful. I'll take it. It's not raining yet. <laughs> Is it supposed to rain today? I don't know. Sure. And I actually, I was just in Florida, and I never say it out loud, but I just was in Florida, and it was beautifully freezing. <laughs> was it? Yeah, so cold. Like well, real first, freezing or Florida freezing? No, Florida freezing. Well, it was yeah. two, the first two days were 70, and then the remainder of it, because I was there for work, and um, the wind. <laughs> How do you feel it about was like Florida was in, in general? in February. The wind was just whipping yeah. off the tundra, so to speak. What? How do you feel about Florida in general? Like as a state, uh, yeah, it's a place to be. Well, I would I like visiting. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Now, my grandmother lived there for years, and so she always used to say, "Come on down and live here. Come on down." And I find it exceptionally flat. So, growing up in Vermont, I find that the flatness is not my cup of tea. But it's definitely the the temperatures in certain parts of the state are. I mean, not that it's not the same but you know you if you go to the keys or if you go to the west coast versus the east coast i well, like the keys the keys are nice yeah. and i love the west coast certain parts like i like uh naples sarasota uh clearwater beach like that whole little yeah. corridor there i like that very much now not so much orlando just because it's very touristy mm -hmm. so i'm not a big fan of that you know all hail disney that's all great, but nonetheless, it's like a different planet, isn't it? And I and I love for for many many years I would go to Cocoa Beach and I I like Cocoa Beach, but I still like the West Coast better if I had to. Now, um, my husband lived there for fifteen something years, and he lived down in Palm Beach and Delray, and that's very pretty, but it's super expensive. So, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be the place that I would pick up and move to currently, but it's certainly a nice place to visit. And I go there all the time, so. Yeah, I, I like of, it, especially for a little while in the winter, but, God, it's like uh, about a week I'm just ready to get out of there. You mean like in general? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't feel that way. I mean, I certainly, if I think I had a mindset of living there, maybe. But that's like me I growing up in Vermont. Everyone's always like, oh, it's so beautiful in Vermont. Don't you want to live there? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not. Because it, it's really beautiful, and there's nothing to do there. And, um, you know, in my hometown, it's... Well, I haven't been there in a while, but my hometown is pizza shop, bar, bar, pizza shop, <laughs> grocery store, bar. What else do you need? <laughs> so between Killington and Ludlow, Vermont. Sounds like heaven. a lot of bars and pizza places. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating to some yeah. extent, but that's what it always felt like growing up is that, you know, there was lots of. But Florida, the Publix alone are enough to do me in. Oh, it's see, like I two trips that. to Publix, and that's like I got to get out of the state. Oh, I love Publix. Do I'd rather go yeah. to Publix than go to Whole Foods. Oh Whole yeah, Whole Foods drives me crazy because there's so many people. Yeah, <laughs> but I love Whole Foods anyway. Um, so I I had a lovely time in Florida working, mm -hmm. and uh, did a lot of good stuff when I was there, and had a little downtime, very minimal because you know me, always working. Yeah. Um, but it was really nice, and so I'll be returning there sometime in the next few weeks for some more. Uh, Thundercatting. Uh, I'm going to Thundercat. Nice. Yes. I probably won't do all the things that they do in the Thundercats, but I will Thundercat nonetheless. <laughs> and for people that are new listeners, um, Thundercatting is part of 
uh, a very cool sport that's been around for quite some time actually overseas, but it has been more recently coming to the United States. And um, there's small little race boats that are two person, you can do one person too, but two person race boats with a co, uh, co-pilot and pilot. And they're uh, go fast boats yeah. and they're super fun and super crazy scary but they're inflatable right they're inflatable boats yeah. so um so there's an awesome company here called ibr um inflatable boat racing mm-hmm. and they have they bring in the boats and they do all the builds of them and they're across the country but they're actually here based in massachusetts and new england area massachusetts connecticut etc and uh they're also affiliated with the human baton we haven't talked about the human baton in two weeks have we have we no Oh, we didn't mention we didn't. last week. We didn't. We were, okay. ta- we were talking about the wellness wheel. That's right. So um, I like so, that episode. Anyway, I like that episode. I did too. Mm-hmm. I got lots of good feedback on that because good. people. And I was actually going to talk a little bit more about that today, but I was going to mention that um, if people are interested in knowing um, about uh, the human baton, because there is that section of grassroots events that happen over here on the East Coast with Thundercats, certainly reach out to me, or you can go to ibr.us um, and you can learn about that but also go to the human baton is thb.live to learn more about it thb.rocks mm-hmm. and um uh, you can go to either site one's the website and one is the platform for where you can register to become part of who we are as a program and franchise for racing and um yeah so those are great things to become a part of and you're welcome dion um dion is the uh Owner and uh, extraordinaire of IBR. Nice. US. So welcome to the show, Dion. And chime in anytime I make a mistake or not make a mistake and say <laughs> anything. But you're very welcome. So I will be thundercatting, and it will be fun. Will be fun. And hopefully, Florida in three and a half four weeks will not be as cold as it was last week. <laughs> All right. Um. Anyway. So. I was going to go back to the wellness wheel last week because a couple of people afterwards, I didn't get a chance to look at some of the um, comments during, and a couple of people had posted up some good questions and then followed up with me after about how do you get, um, how do you maintain your sanity essentially around working or being with someone or even relationship with someone that's in your life because they have to be, and there's nothing you can do about it. Example. You have a person in your life that's a parent that you've been married to or partnered with, you have children with, but he or she is not a good, healthy person to be around. How do you then still (laughs) maintain the relationship without, you know, having the imaginary homicides that people have? (laughs) I call them imaginary homicides. Um, And so it's different. And and that's a hard question, but it's an easy question because you give distance and, and detachment. But that comes in different shades and shapes and sizes. Is depends on what the toxicity level of the person is in your wellness wheel. So in the cases of when people usually ask me that, and I had a variety of people ask me that over the past week, it's usually in cases of people who have spouses or partners that have been either involved in something illicit or they're in like drug involvement, alcohol involvement that's over the top or dangerous or something that's criminal. Typically not, I don't see as much of that. I usually see addiction. And so people who are in addiction, who are in active addiction, create an environment um, when they're, you know, using a lot of cocaine, heroin, a lot of pills, mixing with alcohol. (laughs) Sounds like really that happens. It really does happen. Um, They they present um, 
a risk to themselves and others, and then how do you keep them involved in your children's lives or in your life because they there's some reason that has to happen and then not be going crazy. So you you give emotional distance with love. I always say you love them, but you love them from afar. So you, uh, you know, obviously in some cases the children can't go with that person because they're dangerous, so you obviously have to do the legal things that are involved in making sure right. that happens. Um, but then the other pieces of that are are, you know, codependency issues again, right? Don't answer the phone every single time this person calls you. And don't feel compelled to jump into codependency because you feel bad that if you don't answer the phone, something bad will happen. Right. It's not your fault if something bad happens to a person that's in addiction. They've made choices to be there. And as much as it might pain you and feel guilty, it's not going to be on you kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of a shorter answer than to a long, long answer to someone's individual case that could be talking about it. But you love someone from afar. You give good boundaries, good, healthy spaces, and you say no, you know, no to the crosses of the boundaries, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries. Um, you know, I have clients that have partners of, of old who have children with them and they just show up at their house and walk in. We try to create a boundary around that doesn't right. happen anymore. We change locks. We it, So it's really dependent on that. But also, um, I was thinking of someone who has uh, a significant other that's been in and out of jail, and they have children with this person, but they try to stay away from them, and there's court orders and all these things, and um, the person still pings them for the children. Um, you know, not being disparaging, I always tell parents to tell their children the truth, but age appropriately. So yeah. you're not disparaging, you're not being rude, you're not being disrespectful, but you're being honest. Like, hey, mom or dad is in um, is in jail, and this is what they did, age appropriately, obviously, yep. to what the age can understand. And then also, you know, mom and dad have, you know, little kids I have that have this is, um, you know, dad has a sickness, he has an illness that he takes medication, and sometimes he overuses the medication, and medication's good if you use it. This is where people run into a problem, is that they'll say, medication's not good for you because you can damage your, you know, they get into this bad right. thing, and instead of saying, medication's really good for people when it's used appropriately and correctly and not overused, but some people abuse it, and therefore they get themselves in trouble either, you know, get themselves sick, or they get themselves put in jail, so, um, you know, uh, it's it's kind of a funny thing that people at addiction. I'm sure you all the addiction shows yeah. you've heard. You you've heard it like you know I, the people break out in handcuffs yeah. when they're using. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like an affliction of of uh, the allergy of uh, addiction is that you break out in handcuffs. Yeah. So when you have parents or people in your life that you have that problem with a lot, then you have to just be able to hope for the person to get enough help to not have that happen so that you can either be around them or that you can give enough distance that they're tolerating the ability to see their kids or whoever has to be around. Usually in those cases, if you don't have kids and they're that toxic for you, you just stay away from them um, if, if they can't get their you know, what yeah. together. Let me downscale the question for you yes. a little bit because obviously addiction and, you know, being in jail and all, those are big problems and you have mm. to deal with them at a certain level. What if you have a partner or what if you have uh, somebody that has to be in your life that doesn't have the same level of um, shedding some negative feelings as you do? In other words, you know, into social media, uh, judgmental, uh, just speaking negatively, acting negatively, thinking in the future, in the past, and you're trying to get away from that. And so... Just dealing so, with that. Just... Well, so that's that would be the best of spacing. Like, you know, you're if as long as I mean if, unless the person's living in your house, 
you yeah. can space away from that. That's you don't pick up the phone, you don't answer answer texts. You have good buffers if you have social yeah. friend networks that are there. Um, certainly, you know, taking yourself to those areas, um, making sure that you're not around that person or or engaging that person too often. Um, you know, just being smart about it. It's really hard because usually in those cases, that example you give. Most people are in some kind of codependent relationship that I need you to need me to need you. Yeah. And even though intellectually we all know, we all pretty much know that that's not something that's good for us. Yeah. We tend and um, we're, we, and we, I use we as we are all guilty of jumping into these things, even when we're not codependents per se, because we are helpers or we want to be loving and kind and compassionate. And all of a sudden we find ourselves doing the, I need you to need me to need you. Yeah. Because we don't want to say no to someone because it will hurt them or they'll, or they'll perceive that we're being not nice or whatever. But you have to give as much distance as you can so that you yeah. don't feel overwhelmed. But sometimes you have to interact, whether it's a coworker or a family member or something like that, that you yes. have to have contact with. And by the way, you're not necessarily looking to minimize contact. You're just trying to deal with the fact that that irritates you. Right. So, so that's a very good distinction. So you're not looking to disconnect completely. What you're doing is you're disconnecting with love. So you're connecting and staying connected to some level. You'll offer support if you need to. Never money. Just as an aside, that's a whole different show on addiction. But yeah. you offer the fact that you're there if someone needs help. You're there if, you know, they need food or shelter at times or something like that, as long as it's not dangerous. But in terms of family members. And if it's someone that you're working with, you know, I have these examples come up that people who have addiction issues or they're having, um, and mind you, addiction isn't always drugs and alcohol. It's yeah. eating, it's gambling, it's sex, it's other things too. So, and addiction to relationships. Um, but if you're working with someone like that, usually it's a personality disorder that's the thing that's pushing somebody else's buttons. It's usually the personality that comes out of being in the addiction because people who are in active addiction tend not to act the same as mm -hmm. when they're sober. So when you're around someone, noting to yourself that this person isn't in their right mind, it's in their, it's in their non-sober mind. So um, giving a good wall between you and them of, I'm not going to take what they say seriously. I'm yep. not going to take it personally. Um, you know, I just had someone in my practice that had, um, a family member, um, overdose in the past two weeks. Um, and they called and said, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, you've got to love them from afar because it will pull you in because this right. person kept saying, I, I hate you to the family member, like the person who overdosed kept saying they survived yeah. obviously. And they kept saying to the, the parent, I hate you. You're, you know, you didn't love me. This is what, ah. and the parent, you know, it's the pulling in. I'm like, Nope, you yep. can't take that personal because that's just a way to get you to jump in with them and be unhealthy with them. Right. So it's really giving a good balance, which is hard. You know, it's a, it's a journey because uh, you, we aren't set up and equipped to think that we're going to be in addiction with people. And that's self-imaging strengthening, isn't yes. it? Because the child tells the parent, you never loved me, you treated me poorly. Right. If you know you did a good job, you did the best you could, Right. It, it's much easier to take than if you have your own self-doubts. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of times there are self-doubts in people, and rightfully so, because, I mean, certainly sure. over the 25 years of doing this, I've seen numerous 
in addiction work that I do, numerous parents who drop the ball. But it, nonetheless... But it's hard not to judge yourself with the end result, right? Exactly. You, you, have, to, you have to accept the right. role in it, right? Yes, and you have to also know, like, as the parent on that side, if we're talking about that example, the parent, there's only so much that you can do. At, you know, you can't go back and undo the past. Mm -hmm. And that's in anybody. And then the child, adult, who's in the issue, has to be able to realize, and they will in good recovery, not sobriety. In good recovery, a person will realize that no one else is to blame. Right externally for their stuff it's their own stuff they they have their own lane they got to a point where they created an environment where they made choices and the choices led them down that path and although a history of growing up in a certain environment made it so people pretty much by and large unless they have you know um, mental challenges or things that are growth edges that can't be really adjusted for people find a way at some point in their adulthood to know the difference between right wrong good bad healthy unhealthy Right. And and then it becomes, okay, now what do I do with it? And so, you know, it's, it's and then the on the parenting side or spouse side or, or co-worker side, it's really just being able to stay connected in a healthy way that just offers maybe a listening ear once in a while or whatever. But just being, if you can't do that and you feel more pulled into somebody, then you have to really back it up. So that's the difference between empathy and sympathy. I had this conversation yesterday with a yeah. client about, um, who he has trauma, um, uh, post-traumatic stress. And he was talking about how, how do he asked me, how do I do my job and not leave with trauma? Yeah. <laughs> All the years I've been doing my job. And I honestly don't have trauma from my job. Um, and I know colleagues that do. And certainly this gentleman I was talking to yesterday on his job, which is not even remotely the same as mine, but, um, and I was talking about the differences in our personalities and, and we were likening it to the, he was taught growing up to be really sympathetic, which is very different than empathetic. And I believe it just in knowing my history, I was taught to be empathetic. Yeah. And that's a huge difference in how you bring your kids up. Empathy is a healthier way of being overall. And then sympathy is good for some cases in some scenarios. But what you're doing is when you're sympathetic, you're joining in with someone in their sadness, their happiness, their misery. So if someone's yeah. happy, hey, join them. But when it comes to all those negative toxic things that come up that really shape the brain and rewire it off over and over and over, when you're jumping in and joining someone in their sadness, their depression, their Eeyore, <laughs> right? Their yeah. Winnie the Pooh Eeyore-ness. Yeah. And you're capitalizing on that with them and you're colluding with it. Well, then, then there's there's part of a huge, huge problem and why people then become more traumatized and more, because they integrate themselves into the, into other people's problems. So in my job, if you don't step back, I mean, I see 10 to 15 people a day, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If I left taking on <laughs> with a all lot. the stuff I hear on a <laughs> yeah. daily basis, right? Um, that would be crazy over 25 years. Um, and then given the other years before coming up with all the other things that I was doing, like you just, so empathy, um, and it's a skill I think that, um, you can hone, especially because people, many people aren't empathetic or empathic. And so what you have to do is you really have to say, I can understand how that might feel. I don't necessarily know it because I don't, you know, you, people say, I know how that feels. Mm. Probably not, because you haven't done it, but I can understand, so as a doctor, I can understand how that would feel. Yeah. And 
I can see how it hurts you or makes you feel sad or it makes you feel happy or whatever. But at the end of the day, that's yours and this is mine. I'm not part of that. And so distancing that so that, and that goes back to even the beginning of the show today, talking about how to be connected, but not, you can be genuine, authentic and maintain a good um, environment with someone of health, build good neuroplasticity in the brain for the neurons to fire healthy without joining somebody. And that's a big mistake that people make in their trauma. Is it fair to say the difference between sympathy and empathy is empathy is more intellectual nothing is absolute but it's more intellectual sympathy is more emotional oh that's a very good question yeah because it's it and, empathy and is about I think understanding it's not absolute so i would yeah, say yeah neither sure, is absolute you could look at yeah. it more intellectualized that you're distancing the emotional piece sympathy is harmonizing it's participating in the emotion yes and empathy is understand intellectually understanding exactly. the emotion exactly yeah right so but the but the there is a piece of it's understanding the river is wet without getting in the water yeah exactly yeah, yeah. So, so and and so you know it you see it you can taste it feel it touch it but you're not going to jump in right exactly yeah. so um so that's really a big difference you know kind of in the theme so far is that's a that's the big difference between being involved codependently in someone who has addiction or being with someone um, who's toxic or joining someone in their trauma and then becoming traumatized with them and recreating the problem i mean we could go across the board and talk about a wellness wheel from last week yeah. you're constantly needing to make sure if you're not aware that you are a joiner um then you need to be aware that you're a joiner because that's the first step is awareness is that know that you're joining in and so many people do that and back to the conversation I was having yesterday with this gentleman is like I said you it's because his question was how come I keep having these traumatic events impact me the way they are so all valid I mean he has many traumatic events because of his job and I said it's because you're joining them you're 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 feeling everything that the family is feeling that the the daughter's feeling that that person, that that firefighter, that veteran, that whatever's happening, you are then joining and it's becoming part of your story and it can't be your story. You see, I always wonder about this. There are certain professions, and we were talking about this the other day, but there are certain professions that um, I don't know how people do it. You know, medical people, first responders. Uh, the other day we were just talking about putting an animal down. Right. And I was thinking about the workers in an animal hospital. It's like, how can you do that oh, well, that's all day? A... I would I would just absorb that. I would that would kill me. That would actually absolutely drain me. So that was so good good point in that is that <clears throat> so I was having a conversation as well, um, over the weekend, which is part of the work I was doing last week, um, away, is that both in veterinary care and in hospital care, one of the reasons why I got into which people don't no, maybe I think you do. Is it so? One of the reasons why I got into doing veterinary care psychology of behavior in animals and also people, um, compassion fatigue work, grief work, yeah. is because sort of at the same time as my grandmother passed back in 2003, I also had a wonderful cat, which I have many of, as you guys know. But I so it didn't hit me on that particular cat, but what happened when my grandmother passed in 2003, I remember. Um, very vividly a Thursday going I flew to Florida and when I saw her she was right outside the room she was right outside the nurse station and um, I could see her from the nurse station and they talked about her when I saw her while she was alive with her name Mm -hmm. I visited her she was 
not doing well. Three and a half, four hours later, we got a call at the house and she passed. Mm -hmm. So I immediately went back to the hospital. And what struck me and started this this little piece of me was when I stood in front of the nurse's station, the same nurses, few of them were talking about her, but they were not using her name anymore. They said, we have an expiration in oh. room, now room, you know, room 70, whatever. Right. And I felt this anger, agitation, like she was something and now she's nothing. And, and she's just an expiration. That started my thinking on how cold and lacking compassion and unkind to do in front of a family member. <clears throat> and really ticked me off, yeah. right? Because it was like, oh my God. So, and no one had really talked to me about it, this happening before. So it struck in me a chord of, I wonder how often this happens because it's got to happen a lot. And I started asking like people that I knew in my practice that were undertakers and oh, yeah. and the stories, you know, it's like, you know, when you, when it's like when you buy a car and all of a sudden you see the car everywhere, this was a phenomenon all of a sudden right. that people started talking about. And right after that, within a couple of years, this lovely little animal of mine, soul passed. And all of a sudden at the end of that experience, I noticed, huh, the same thing. And it was like, okay, here's a tissue and send you on your way. So I started thinking about, well, how could I help with compassion fatigue for people who are family members mm -hmm. who aren't getting what they need from hospital workers, et cetera. And then I was like, oh, veterinary too. So kind of all at the same time, I started working on that thought process and brought together that, um, the idea that not only in, cause hospitals now have it, but veterinary care wasn't having it, having it. And you go into a veterinary hospital and they essentially put your animal, euthanize your animal and, and then they send you on your way. And I watch people, and this brings me to Kalila, my cat a few years ago, she passed of cancer. And I watch people come in and out of that mass referral hospital for weeks on end watching animals pass devastated with not a lot of yeah extra fuzzies and warmies and um so i was like you know what that's rough and what made it change was kalila um the veterinarian that was taking care of her with the staff at that particular hospital um it was the first time i'd ever seen them all very um emotional about how amazing she was tearful how sad it was to lose her to the point where my veterinary um my veterinarian she quit yeah. her job and took a hiatus because she had cared for her for so long and i know that sounds weird that like why but it wasn't just because of kalila but kalila put it over the top for her because so many people well that was a relationship as opposed to a patient right, right? and that's what so she and i talked yeah. about what happened and and then i talked with some of the staff that had con bonded with kalila they had a bond with her and and they said we go through this so many times a day and we feel so um empty because we try to save them and you know, you know, when it's when it's an emergency and something bad happens and it's a little bit different, it's like quick, 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 yeah. kind of thing. But when it's something that you've been doing for a long time right. with a particular pet and fur baby or a person, and all of a sudden they pass, it has that same impact, and people don't realize that. So, long, long, obviously, story short, I, I started developing a program on how to bring compassion fatigue and grief counseling to veterinarians, and 
staffs of, of hospitals or places that are doing these things. And my veterinary stuff took off because they had more of a need for it because the hospitals yeah. had already started implementing that. Um, and but they have to use some of this phrasing and procedure as self-defense, don't they, or, or self-care? Well, sure, because, yeah, yeah if not, then you know you, you just don't do well but i, I have had and several. i'm guessing they have to re especially i was thinking because i just had this conversation about vets and putting animals down i'm guessing they have to rephrase it in their mind they have to reframe it they have to be putting the animal out of its misery or the animal's time has come i can help ease the transition and you know they have to look at it that way so so i i, I certainly can't speak for any of the veterinarians yeah. particularly that i know but i do know that in their stories the there's similar to emergency room doctor stories that I have in my practice that tell me about um, how they put up a wall that it's um, not not that it's not a person but it's there it's not them right. kind of like when I do my work it's well this person's suffering with all these things and I understand what that's like but it, it's not the same right so I mean I've had patients who've been with me for years and have passed away um, things like that and it's sad. But it's it's the similar right. it's that feeling, but it's very different when you're involved in having to be part of the euthanizing of an animal, um, because you you usually have a bond in many cases unless it's that quick emergency kind of thing. You usually have a bond, and that's the thing is no one's taking care of that um, connection, yeah. um, and it's just over and it's on to the next, which is to the point of how important it is to really stay connected to the feeling so that it doesn't back up on you yeah. as opposed to burying it when people think oh if we just put it aside well a hundred a hundred cats dogs horses da 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 later it's yep. very very overwhelming um so the uh connection you know back to sort of the beginning of the show is that that having that connection and giving a good healthy boundary is fine but in certain cases like these things where you have to have that compassion and the empathy goes it right the empathy um is super important the intellectualizing of it to be able to say this is this is um i think it's a beautiful thing that like one of the vets i know she um always explains like the the, the difference between if the the animals to stay alive versus not and what the quality of life would be and that's some of the great research has been done on the human animal bond now is people being able to make choices based on the quality of life. Yeah. Now, interesting as a psychologist, I get the question all the time in my classes that I teach of, well, if we can do that for animals, right. why can't we do that for people? <laughs> right. Which Dr. Kevorkian would be happy to tell <laughs> us all that we should be doing that for people in a humane way and putting people out of the misery. Um, but as you know, we get into the moral ethical debate of who has... It, well, it's really moral, ethical, and religious debate of, you know, but the interesting part of, get into. Yeah, what? the interesting part of that is not necessarily the thoughts and wishes and moral and ethical debates of the people around the person. Right. It's the person themselves. Well, right. The person gets to take an intellectual stand, and I can understand situations where you wouldn't want to linger. Well, and, and so that's, and that was to, you know whatever people come down on the side of, of either side of Dr. Kevorkian's message, if you know the work that he's done, that was his point, is that why isn't it, you know, there was psychology involved there that people would be able to be cognitively not compromised to be able to make end-of-life decisions for themselves so they would have integrity to live or die the way that they wanted to instead mm -hmm. of, you know, running out of course in hospice on 
ventilators or, right. you know, obviously coming off ventilators in hospice, but, and then being on like a morphine drip until you pass away, you know, he has some really interesting theories on, you know, take out all the moral, ethical, religious stuff, but just the interesting theories on the fact that having control over your life to live your life and die in your life with dignity. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the biggest things that people have is the control over their independence and self-sustaining ability to control. But it gets into suicide and suicidality sure. and all these things that become too big of an issue, which is why he ended up in jail. <laughs> yeah. Because he was, there's because there's always a fine line in questioning, like, really, is someone competent of making the decision? Have they been suicidal? Like, there's so many pieces involved in it that it becomes big so time that's for another show yeah. <laughs> not for today it's a whole nother show. um but but going back to just the the um the intellectual connecting and being able to stay um healthfully connected to someone something or an experience is um probably your best protector for resiliency and getting yourself to move forward and not getting stuck in a pattern of something do you know what i mean yeah I, that smaller scale I was talking about, on my end, I wonder that, I wonder if it's my, in other words, just you're around people who, who don't have the same um, quest for peace that you have, mm. you know, and it's like, for me, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of times, this is me, this is something, they're being relatively normal, not being overly you know, toxic is too strong a word, but it's like, you know, why are we getting into this? It's 11 o'clock at night. Oh, there, there, there's your, there's your issue. Yeah. It's time for me to watch Baywatch and go to bed. Well, <laughs> An episode right. of Baywatch I, and go to bed. I love it. I love the fact that you just outed that you watch Baywatch. Yeah, I, I do. love it. Lou and I had a conversation off, <laughs> offline yeah. last, two weeks ago or last week about his love of Baywatch. Yeah, let's watch an episode of Seinfeld and just call it a day. <laughs> As opposed to going into the, the you know the problems of the problems of the world or the problems on social media or whatever it is so this so okay so there, and i've talked about but i this think i i'm tending to think i overreact to that i'm overly sensitive to that well some people are so so people are sensitive to nighttime and so this is a common couples issue <laughs> so as i do a little counseling on the side here yeah. this is a common couples issue that you see with people is that um nighttime is for a variety of reasons it's the time that people are obviously ramped down there's no other things going on it's it's time that there's no other distractions kids are away whatever kids are whatever and and there's life nothing is, you can do there's nothing you can do you cannot <laughs> escape from the nighttime no you can't there's whatever it is you're dealing with there's nothing i can do about it right now it'll oh, be well, there in the yeah, morning that, but, that, but you also can't escape at night which yeah. is to my point is that so there's a you know there's a reason why it will bother people more at night is because it catches you even though you might be anticipating because you know the pattern is coming it catches you off guard because you're trying to ramp down for the night right. and this is what ramps up and so people find time now oh it's time to talk and then you know inevitably yeah. you get someone that says well can we talk about it in the morning well the morning morning always comes and what has what happens in the morning as we know it's it's fast. A whole fresh it's moving. set of it's stuff. Yeah. It, there's no time to talk. So yep. nighttime becomes this time that happens. Um, so my recommendations for those types of things are during the daytime, like morning or in betweens or talking on the phone quick or something. Is we cannot have conversations at eleven o'clock at night. Yeah. Because what it does, you know, neurologically, what you know, 
it ramps up the body, it gets the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system moving and shaking, and, and the polyvagal nerve, which is the thing that regulates your emotions, and it gets it fired up, and now it's like bouncing up and down, so what is that gonna do to your sleep? Well, it's all connected to the area in your brain that regulates your sleep, <laughs> and activates memories and and so the yeah. you know hippocampus for memories and the hypothalamus for like sleep regulation and then the amygdala for agitation and anger yeah. <laughs> because usually if you're having a conversation 11 o'clock at night it's usually not going to be a happy conversation typically in my experience in my practice so all these things are happening and so instead you have to have a front-loaded conversation at some point in the week earlier in the day just saying we really can't do this and we have to honor that that has to not happen and if we there's a million different techniques you can write down like here's the three things that we really need to talk about in the next yeah. two days but not at 11 o'clock at night but people are notorious for doing this and i think last year i did a show on uh, going back to my grandmother she must be on my mind today um my grandmother used to set a hard boundary with people I won't name those people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost did too. I was like, <laughs> a hard boundary of do not call me past 10 o'clock. Yeah. So said, I want to do that non, so non bad. said people would call her, not being me, by the way, non said people would be calling her at 9.59. <laughs> and yeah. so my grandmother learned to back it down so that these particular people would call her before 10 so that the call would end by 10.30, so that the real right. time was that she wanted it wrapped up and done because right. the conversations were never, I shouldn't say never, 90% of those conversations, as I recall, were never healthy. Yeah. And so then she'd get on the phone, she'd call me, and I didn't have a hard stop, So she, because I was much younger, and yeah. I'd be like, hey, Graham, and she'd be like, oh, my God, so-and-so just <laughs> called me, blah, blah, blah. So then she yeah. would take and dump on me. Yeah. <laughs> Pass it down the line. Pass it right down the nighttime line, so I'd be up till 2 thinking about it now um, sometimes. But, you know, so it's it's a very common pattern in people, and what, you know, it's so neurologically brain-wired um, that yeah. we do these things because again it's like eating at night hungry angry lonely tired mm -hmm. why do you call people because you're not hungry but you're usually angry lonely or tired it's right. the alt part of it it's it's you've got something to get off your chest you've got to vent something or you're lonely and you just need a place to talk and put it or you're tired and you just want to say something but you you got to contact that person one last time so there's lots of pieces well, that go into kind of the everyday life of things i'm empathetic about this that's empathetic. You? I'm empathetic about this because I used to be that person. What happens late at night when everything starts to drop off is all the stuff that you're worried about and concerned about and threat generating about starts to float up to the surface. That's right. That's what makes sleep so difficult. That's so, right. But and see, having gone through that and having suppressed that and, and given the ability to just drop things, you know, at a, at a given point in the day, it's like, okay, I'm done. You know, it'll all be there tomorrow. I'm done. I understand why people do it. Yes. But it's still, it's to me, it's irritating because I beat it in myself, and I and just want don't want it coming like, at me. Well, so and it, it, it's it's often stupid little things. It's not even as as it's not even as uh, you know toxic or negative as as we're talking about. It's just kind of it's my that's my stuff. So it's well, it's right. really grating against me. And so you and you know that it's your stuff. Yeah. And that's a big piece of this work is. Yeah. You have to know that it's your stuff and not pass it off to someone else because you're trying to unload it somewhere. So one of the techniques I use 
I created this probably about seven or eight years ago around someone that had a really bad sleep issue. I kept saying, instead of unloading it every night on your mom or on your friend, who that's who this person was doing that with, I'm like, I want you to do what, what I call now a thought dump. So I want you to dump out every single thing. <laughs> it could take you five minutes. It could take you five seconds. It could take you five hours. I don't care. But I want you to dump everything out in a notebook. It doesn't have to have periods. Free form, no perfection. Just, you know, this day was terrible. I can't stand my friend. I am worried about tomorrow's work. Yeah. Whatever it is, just dump it all out. Because what happens in the brain is we rehash over and over again to sort of memorize as not hope to not forget that we have these things and then we build the anticipatory anxiety and it's almost a way that we're reliving some of our origins and past of like how we you know ramp up to be the best person we're supposed to be but by doing it in a really unhealthy way yeah so so we're replaying replaying at night as a way to rehearse it so that in the morning when we wake up we won't forget mm-hmm. So that's one piece of it. And so thought dumping puts all of that away. And so that you know, as a reassurance that I don't have to think about it because I've already put it down. And if you go to the paper the next day, you go to the journal or whatever, it's there and it's been saved for you so that you don't have to leave it in your head. Kind of like going to therapy. People often will say, why is therapy, you know, so important? You know, what's the big, because talking, thought dumping, which is what I call it, thought dumping and leaving it with someone else, especially someone who can detach, like mm-hmm. I do, right? You're leaving it with someone else who's going to remember for you. And you don't have to carry it with you because it's 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 out in the world. It's It's got a space that didn't go anywhere in terms of like it didn't get misremembered. It yep. didn't get forgotten. It just, it's out there. But now you're not the only person containing it, but you're also not burdening someone with it. You're taking it off the table for all of those pieces. Plus it's processing, isn't it? Yes. It, it's yes. the very definition of processing. Yes. And oftentimes, <clears throat> you must have seen it in your sessions. I'm sure you've seen it in your sessions because I've done it a hundred times in my sessions where you're trying to explain the situation and all of a sudden the person says, well, something just occurred to me because yes. you're reducing the thought to words. Yes, because all of a sudden yeah. the connection that was just made was like an aha moment yeah. or a little, a little aha moment to go, okay, oh, I know this now. I know what's going on. Because you're very willing to leave it as a nebulous emotion. But when you start to... Think about it and put it, reduce it into words. Right, because the descriptor yeah. that most people would use is, I'm not thinking of anything. It's just, I just lay in bed and I just can't sleep. Yeah. And mm. like, yeah, yeah, no, that's not true. Yeah. And you could, it's so funny because just had a, a new client yesterday that was telling me something like this, and I can't tell you. I wish I had a dollar for all the times I've been told I'm not thinking of anything. Um, <laughs> you know, but the, it's it is very nebulous, but it actually is very specific. And to convince someone that it's specific. We walking through that process and all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, I do do that at night. That's exactly, it's not just this free form, you know, there, you know the diagnostic code is generalizing anxiety yeah. disorder, right? There, it's generalized because it feels physically, this is how I describe it, it feels physically generalized because it's just an overall feeling. However, it's usually related to really specific things and it's not everything. Right. When, so when people say, I have generalized anxiety, which is the code you have to use to bill, right? Um, yeah, it is generalized, but I can't think of one time where I'm not able to pick out like there's, there it is, right there. Right. And there's a theme often of what the threat generated fear is across their lifetime, which has a root 
and it just manifests itself in different ways. Right. But it always has a specific thing going on of what, you know, what's coming, what's going, what's been, what's, you know, the whole thing that connects to it. And the brain is just so used to, at that point, just responding physically that it feels very generalized. So when someone's laying in bed with racing thoughts and they're trying to compact them and hold them, they're not having 500 thoughts usually that are all random. They're all usually interconnected back to one little nebulous circle. To have, right. you know, so it's not nebulous. It's nebulous as a little circle with everything contained. And that's that part of your life when you were young and you had no control and you had to cope with whatever the threat was. Right. So you came up with these um, responses. Right. To the threat. Exactly. Without having any control. In other words, if you're an adult, you can walk out of the room. You can stop talking to that person. You can, you can, you have theoretically you have some control, exactly. but you develop these responses when you didn't have any have control. control. Right. Yeah. And. And so, right, because you couldn't walk away many yeah. times. Just think of kids with parents who are getting in trouble for something. You can't just say, okay, I, I'm overwhelmed. I've had enough. I have to walk away. Right. Nope. That's immediate first, first hand, first responder training to you are under threat. You are under fire. And instead of walking away and, or getting out of the situation that's unhealthy, you have to stand and get fired at. Yep. And, and then try to figure out what to do with that. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, my gosh. Right. So that's that's a great example of what happens in all. I mean, because you're inevitably going to grow up with somebody that's going to do, do that to you where you can't get out of it. And, you know? and this may seem like an odd question, but last, let me ask you the percentage of times that when a person identifies the source of their anxiety, yes. it's the correct source. Hmm. Well, I can only answer that anecdotally. Yeah. So I would guess it's misdirected. A lot of the time, it, it starts usually, at a it starts at a, at a transferred point as opposed to the original point. Yes, I would say that it's usually thirty percent of the time. I think someone's spot on. Oh yeah, that around, sounds about and right. I'm giving that a pat thirty yeah. percent, just as a round number. Seventy percent of the time, people are off. Yeah, because usually I have to do the you know the top down process of or the you know the bottom up process to figure out. Yeah really where it is because you know i often use humor in my sessions and be like really you think that's what it is because it's usually the thing that the person brings to the table is usually so innocuous right that it couldn't possibly be creating the problem but in but you still validate that experience because you know that that's where they've come to in their head that this is what it is but that's where the fire hose is aimed right that particular in exactly. incident right the fire is somewhere else Yes. But that's where they can reach with the fire hose. That's where they feel they they can they feel like they can take some control on that particular subject. Exactly. Yeah. Well, because it's it's the it's usually the lesser of all evils. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like you know it's the difference between a want and a need to do list. The yeah. need to do list is the one that's the like in psychology it would be the thing that's like sitting underneath as the difficult thing to look at. The want to well I'm gonna go. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do the easy things first, you know. Yeah. I need to do this, and then you procrastinate on the need to. But I want to do this. Well, that's more fun, so I'm going to go well, do that. Well, I can easy. harass my husband about this, but I can't go back and resolve it with my father. Exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. So my husband takes a hit. <laughs> Lou? Lou's working it out today. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, no, no. Oh my god! It's not what I meant, but yeah. I know. But that, but so Freud would say. Yeah. Freud would say that you are unconsciously processing some of your own stuff today in 
therapy here. Yeah. Well, I'm using it as exa- yeah. I'm yeah. using it as uh, example and experience because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about except but, I know. But this is but this is exactly to the point though, and, and so sort of funny tongue in cheek with the Freud thing. But that's why I actually love Freud, and, and that's a whole other show too. Um, but. The whole underneath side, what you were just saying, even though it wasn't necessarily pointed, it was pointed because our topic is ringing a nerve or hitting a nerve with you to good, bad, or indifferent to actually get you to process something to start thinking about a different way. That's the benefit of getting like a a health and wellness, like psychology piece to your life and in general, people in general, Um, is that because when you start processing, like the listeners right now, I imagine this topic has churned up people's thought process on, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because you sit in that, that space that's on the surface and when you really go down underneath, it's like, oh. Yeah. Oh. And that's one of the reasons why people don't like therapy is because that underneath thing scares them. They don't no, know what's but, gonna come out. But therapy is the best. I, I mean, well, I'm, I think so. <laughs> no, I've done I've done several tours, you know, f- with ser- several degrees of needing to do it, and right. sometimes I do it just because I want to do it because, as I put it, and I put it halfway jokingly, it's like my friends and my circle can't handle what I'm dealing with. Right. And being able to talk to somebody who is a little bit detached. Right. And will challenge you a little bit. Right. As opposed to, oh yeah, he's a jerk. It's right. Like, That's not what you want. Well, so and, and so yeah. that's the benefit, you know, talking about like brain protection here is that the, that's the benefit of having a therapist or a life coach that has training, mind you, uh, you know, and I caution people on this, not because of what I do for a living in terms of like that I think I'm special, which I am, but <laughs> <laughs> just saying, sure. um, but you can't just go to someone to talk to. It's not your family. It's not a friend. It's got to be someone that actually has clinical or theoretical and clinical means really theoretical understanding of why people come to be who they are. If yeah. the person that you're talking to is your mom, dad, sister, brother, uncle, whatever, I mean, they're going to most people have good intuition. They can put sure. stuff together, link it and puzzle it. But then really understanding it and really giving you a good base of you're a good person and you are good enough and you are whole and today is present and all you you know you can say all those things as a lay person even a person with a certification in something like this but it's not the same as really seeking out someone who knows theoretically what's going on so right. it, so you go to your friend and your friend like you just said says oh, such a jerk blah 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 that's not helpful right because we know, we all could look subjectively objectively at someone and something and go yeah you're a jerk but how does that help you it's about not about the other person being a jerk it's about what is it about that person that's making you feel this way? And let's work on yeah. that. And what are they? So many times you don't, you know, you won't get that in any of those friendships or family relationships. And that's one of the biggest dissuaders of people coming to therapy is family and friends will say, why do you need a therapist? You've got me. Totally yeah, different. No. Yeah. Totally different because a person who's trained in doing the things that I do or people like me, um, that's a very different egg. Well, all kinds of emotional filters and perspectives about right. their relationship with you, their relationship with the person that you're talking about. Right. You know, especially if it's family and interrelated. I mean, well, there's, there's all kinds of things going on. Well, especially because most of the time, and here's the most of, not always, but most of the time, when there's something going on, it has a root in family. Yeah. And you can't talk to the family. It's usually about the family member that you can t- that you want to talk about is the one that says you can talk to me no yeah no 
or you know the you know the mom dad or whoever or the spouse that will be like oh there's nothing going on here it's been fine I always love that I get the people in my office say I always say what is your what were your growing up years like and this is my first sign that it's going to be a deeper processing yeah. person is the answer is typically my childhood was great it was fine fine yeah fine yeah yeah and i'm like oh what does that mean oh i mean like my parents were good to me um we didn't want for anything mm. yeah and it's not just being like it, but you're sitting here with this ton of anxiety and you have all these stressors and you have limited coping strategies and you're going to tell me that it was fine. Yeah. And it's not, again, about going back and blaming. It's like, oh, because we find out, well, you know, dad's grandfather committed suicide and dad has bipolar and mom has a drinking problem. And, oh, but it was fine. <laughs> because people are so socialized into what they grow up in is the norm. If you get if you yeah. are growing up in an environment where you're being beaten, you think everyone on the exactly. street is being yeah. beaten. If you grow up with someone that doesn't ever say I love you and hug and you go to your friend's house and see people say, "Oh, I love you" and hug their kids, you're like, "What's going on?" Yeah. It's the frame of reference. So, when you come into my office, I always say I give those examples. I say you'll know what you know. And until you know something different, right. you're just going to think everything was fine. Well, and the then way you I won't put really it, look at your deeper issues. The way I put it now is I thought my childhood was terrific. Yep. Because my parents didn't pay any attention to me. I had my oldest sister. And it's like if I didn't come home with the cops behind me, everything was fine. I, I never had curfews. I was never wondering where I was. It was right. like you weren't part of the college decision. Just let me do my thing. And I thought right. it was great. Right. And then I started to have kids and go, no, it's not going to happen. Because <laughs> you realize, wait a second. Yeah. I right? mean, I could have used some guidance here. I could have used some, you know, I could have used the, you know, what did you do tonight? Right. You know, not right. that they were prying. It's just like that, that they had some interest. Right. You know? Right. Well, and, and I think that, you know, I mean, parenting, I think, is one of the hardest jobs in the world because, you know, there's there's so many ways to make mistakes. Yeah. And not realize. And I got the blueprint. So it's like I went into parenting knowing exactly, in my mind, knowing exactly what not to do. Right. Yeah. Well, and and I don't have children. But if I did, I would know what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd also know that I know where some of my Achilles heels are, where I know that I would make mistakes. Because I even catch myself sometimes with, you know, my nieces and nephews. And I'm like, sure. yeah. and I And I end up going, I shouldn't have said that to you. Or I didn't mean it that way. Or because I, I know. Yeah. But it just is so automatic because I can hear. And then I hear, oh, God, I just sounded like my father. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to sound like, you know, or cringeworthy. But I always go back. That's the other thing is if you sound like the thing that you didn't want to ever sound like and you can apologize for it, go back and do that. Because that certainly does repair work in the damage. And when people don't do that, it yeah. keeps the brain wired in a bad way. It's funny you say that because there are a couple sayings that my mother used to say all the time. And one of my greatest accomplishments of life is never saying it to my kids. Yeah. Never saying it. Yeah. Catching yourself not to say it. Yeah. Right. I work with a whole bunch of clients that have, that are, I, I will consider them rewiring their parenting brains because they catch themselves all the time. They'll say it and they're working on not and then slipping and seeing like um, how to not do that. But more importantly, when I got to that point, more importantly, it wasn't that I had to catch myself from saying it. It's like I look at them, look them in the eye and say, I would never say that to my child. Right. How do you say that to your child? I don't understand. And this is all in retrospect, you know. Right. I'm in my 30s, and all of a sudden I'm wondering, how did she ever say that? How do you say that to a child? Oh, well, there could be hours of yeah. phrases that I could tell you that parents in my career have said to their children that are 
they make my eye twitch. Yeah. And sometimes I don't contain that eye twitch. Yep. <laughs> you know, I'm trained to not twitch, but sometimes it's so hard not to. You, like, look at someone going, really? Yeah. You said what? Um, you know, and certainly, and, uh, of course, not throwing them completely under the bus. I mean, my parents and my friends' parents said stuff that was, like, certainly sits with me now going, I can't believe they actually said that to me. Yeah. Absolutely can't believe they said that to me. Like, yeah. I think I think about that a lot. But that's, I think, a byproduct of my job because I hear people say yeah. stuff and they go, oh, I remember when so-and-so said that. Or, And then growing up in sports, coaches growing up in the time that we grew up, it's the same thing, rewiring the brain around uh, messages I got from coaching. And I hear coaches now still doing some yeah. of that. And I cringe going, no, you know, stop berating, you know, the kid comes off the field or the kid comes off the floor and instead of saying, that was really good when you did this and then giving the feedback of the thing that they need to correct, it's immediately like, you didn't pivot fast enough, you didn't throw the ball, you, can you give something good here? Some, one thing, just <laughs> yeah. one thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, the kid is 10 and research will show, and anecdotally I could tell you that by the time a kid's 12 or 13, roughly by 14, almost always, they'll tap out of the sport if that's the pattern that's been happening because they get burned out. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, look so, at that. We're getting close to the end. And this wasn't even the topic I was going to talk no. about today. <laughs> I was actually going to talk about, so I'm going to set it up for next week. Um, we do have coming up, by the way, we'll be getting ready to have another guest or two. Excellent. They'll be coming from the human baton. Shocker. <laughs> um, but different aspects of it. Um, and uh, if JC Chappelle is listening, we will hopefully be having him soon um so shout out to him and if calvin's listening um you know calvin we're gonna have calvin back and Excellent. then uh we'll have uh kyle hudson on eventually he's a baton in training um and he's out in california mm -hmm. and i don't know if kyle knows that he's gonna be doing that but <laughs> he's gonna be joining us um we'll let him know i'll let him know and uh so on and so forth but over the next month or two i'm gonna be uh, ramping that up because we'd love to have people come and join me in my adventures of of Horsing around with endurance <laughs> horses and running amok on Thundercats and UTV racing. and. All right. But what didn't we get to this week that we're going to we do next week? We did not get to. Um, so it's an interesting little phenomenon that I used to work in geriatrics. You've learned a lot about me today, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> and you've learned a lot when about me. When I first started my career, I worked at one of the most famous hospitals if not the most famous hospital in the country, McLean Hospital here yeah. in Belmont, Massachusetts. Yeah. And I worked in geriatrics as the rehab coordinator for the geriatric special care unit um, for Alzheimer's and um, dementia. Oh, I had a moment. Yes. <laughs> did you see that hitch? You did have it's a like, moment. There yeah. was a moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so That might have been Freudian. <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they... Uh, one of the interesting things back then was the phenomenon of when people have memory issues, they often have a lot of different uh, physical issues coming up, like Parkinson's, obviously, and, you know, extrapyramidal side effects of sh tremors and things, and um, their vision kind yep. of goes and hearing as a person gets older, but depending. But one of the phenomenons that came up, losing my voice, hold on, <coughs> um, was I would often have patients tell me that they couldn't smell. Hmm. And the reason why I'm bringing it up like that is because it's similar to what I keep hearing about with people who have um, COVID-related symptoms. The number one symptom I've heard about since last year is the loss of taste and smell. Right. 
And so, of course, me being who I am as a person, I was like, ooh, this is very interesting to me. I want it because there's not a lot of research on smell psychology, but there is, but there's not. So I know you're looking at me like, you are so crazy, Kim. But um, No, actually, I'm kind of hooked. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so what I was going to talk about today is there's a phenomenon <clears throat> around uh, insomnia. And um, it's a really cool phenomenon. Insomnia. Asomnia. Yes. Oh, insomnia. Yeah. And... Um, yeah. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah. I have multiples in my head. There's like aphasia. There's all kinds of that's yep. speech. Um, but we were gonna wait. It's anosmia. See, I didn't say it. It's anosmia. Anosmia. A n o s m i a. Yes, the yep. loss of smell. And how important it is that when you do not have a sense of smell, how much it alters your brain to be able to function physically and mentally and how much and there's really good research around alzheimer's and and dementia patients and parkinson patients who lose their sense of smell and how much the anxiety and depression a person goes up because of it because you, yeah. you your whole lifestyle is really based around your sense of being able to smell and taste mm -hmm. without the smell you don't taste so then either your food becomes restricted or you can't sense if something's dangerous or bad for you right or you overeat or you under eat. i mean there's so many pieces to this and so with covid um i um, so many people have been talking to me about the loss of smell and not coming back and if it has come back, it's only come back in parts. Or I have a friend that has come back in parts. And every it, I'd say most of it's come back, she says. But then for the things that on the day she lost her sense of taste and smell, she still can't smell and taste those things. Hmm. Like So if she was making macaroni and cheese that day, let's say, for instance, she can't smell macaroni and cheese or really? taste it. But she can taste and smell everything else. Specifically. Yes. Interesting. So, so one of the things that I was reading about in this little thing I was thinking about the other day is um, psych APA, the psychiatric association and the medical association in America has been looking at how much additives people have been putting into their foods to try to like see if they can get their taste up. So people are adding more salt yeah. and adding more pepper and, all, and it's creating physical problems for people. Well, that happens as you age too. And yes, you tend to over season and, and not so and here's the link to the aging is that people who have the loss of the sense of smell and taste their rate of mortality for like death goes right up like that because of all the things that happen yeah so i just did that in a little four minute nutshell yeah. of what i really was going to bring to the table today oh, I like um it. and it's anosmia and the loss of smell and taste and so on and how much of an impact it really makes on you as a person and so given that it's typically found in alzheimer and uh, you know, Parkinsonian and later stage vascular dementia patients, it's actually now yeah. a little phenomenon in the COVID set. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about, if I remember. See that? No pun intended. <laughs> Alzheimer for next week. Um, and yeah, so you guys have a fantastic week and go out and do good things. <laughs>